Robertson, and this is the Mountain and Prairie Podcast, where I introduce you to some of the innovative and creative individuals who are helping to shape the future of the American West. I meet most of these people through my work in ranch brokerage and land conservation, or through my hobbies and interests that revolve around spending time up high in the mountains. My guests include ranchers, writers, entrepreneurs, conservationists, athletes, artists, pretty much anyone who's doing important work and has an interesting story to tell. My guest today is Teal Blake. If you love art and you love the American West, chances are you're already a fan of Teal Blake's. His paintings of horses, cowboys, and the ranching lifestyle are some of the most authentic and creative around. Teal's art is authentically Western because he's so authentically Western. He's worked on ranches for all of his life, has ridden rodeo on the professional level, and has been making art since before he can remember. These unique life experiences, combined with a deep-seated drive to create original and striking art, meld together to make him one of the most genuine and fresh faces in Western art today. Teal grew up in Augusta, Montana, the son of two creative parents who allowed him to roam free, fishing, hunting, and exploring the wilderness out his back door. During high school, he discovered his talent for bull riding and rodeo, and he pursued that passion for years, eventually competing on the professional circuit. But throughout all of his various adventures and life stages, Teal was continuously sketching and painting, and after several impressive showings at Western art shows, he decided to make a go of it as a professional artist. Since then, he hasn't looked back, and his stature in the Western art world continues to grow. We had a very fun and in-depth conversation in which we discussed Teal's upbringing in Montana and Idaho and how his artistic parents influenced his life and work. We chatted about his experiences at art school which ended with him flunking out, yet being the only one from his class to actually make it as a professional artist. We discuss his background in ranching and rodeo, and his process of transitioning into life as a professional artist. We also talk about the important role that external validation can play in a solitary creative endeavor such as painting. As usual, we discuss favorite books, favorite films, and his favorite place in the American West. We cover a lot in this episode, so be sure to check out the episode notes for all the topics and links to everything we discuss. This is a really, really good episode, so I know you'll enjoy. So here you go, Teal Blake. Meet somebody for the first time, never met them before, and they ask you that question, what do you do? How do you answer that? You know, that took me a long, I, I thought about that question, and that, that took me a long time to admit that I was an artist. I don't know why. Mm-hmm. Um, now when people ask me, I, I tell them I'm an, I'm an artist. Um, I guess it's odd. It was odd for me to admit that to people for a long time because for so long I'd, I, I rodeoed, I, I, you know, I competed in events and I worked on ranches and so I'd say, oh, I, I rodeo or I cowboy or whatever. So it was an odd, um, I think it was kind of an odd thing to finally admit maybe. And when did you finally admit that? Was there a, was there a specific point or a specific event that, that made you realize, all right, I, I am a professional artist, or was it kind of a, a process over time, or both? Um, you know, I, I, I'd been rodeoing so much, I'd always, I'd always painted and I'd always sketched, um, but I, I guess I'd never, I never knew what I was going to do. I kind of floated around for a while. Um, and then I I had moved to Texas to get out of kind of get out of the weather of up north and mm-hmm. be around horses more a little bit and uh, I was competing a bunch and then I think I was entered up in about five or six rodeos one weekend and 
went to all those and I came home and instead of entering more, I just, I, I kind of drug out this easel my father had, had lent me and, uh, set up a makeshift little studio in the back room of this house I was renting and just kind of went to, and I didn't enter anything after that again. Really? Um, it was like a switch. It was this very odd switch had been, been clicked off. And, uh, I think I knew it was always there and I was going to do it eventually. But that, that, <clears throat> that may have been the most natural thing I'd ever done. Honestly, hmm. we're always, you always hear about people searching their meaning and what they're supposed to do. And, uh, it was very. It became very natural for me. Well, let's um, let's back up a little bit and just start with with kind of where you grew up, because I know you've you've lived throughout the the American West, and you've got a, a interesting backstory. I know both of your parents are, are very creative, and your you know your great grandfather has uh, uh, history in the horse business. So maybe let's just start out. You know, where were you born? Um, what was your childhood like? You know, how, how much did art play a role in it versus, versus horses and rodeo? Um, I was born in Helena, Montana. Okay. And at the time my father was working a ranch, uh, between Helena and Augusta, Montana, which is Augusta is about 75 miles North of Helena, right on the base of the Rockies on the Eastern slope. Yep. And, um, so, so I was born up there, and then shortly after I was born, uh, my folks found a, a really cute little old house in this little town of Augusta. So they moved to town, and um, so I was raised there. There was eight kids in my class, all the way from kindergarten to high school. <laughs> uh, typical little small ranching farming community. Uh, very, uh, not uh, you know, sheltered to the rest of the world. I would say it was very, um, very stand by me ish. Yep. Where it was the kids take their bikes and we go to the river and we're gone from in the morning till, you know, we come back in the dark and nothing ever happened. We were always safe. We had grizzly bears and everything else up there. And, but we grew up being kids and little wild heathens out in the brush pretty much. <laughs> uh, you know, always packing our 22s and shooting prairie dogs. And, you know, during hunting season, we'd take off in little groups. We were we were going hunting by the time we were probably 11 or 12, and we all had our driver's licenses by then up there. Really? Yep. And um, it was it was a great way to grow up. It really was. I wouldn't I wouldn't trade it for anything, and I miss it. I miss it all the time. It was a pretty neat deal. Uh, you know, the town had five bars, and in the winter, it's 40 below, and so you kind of grow up on a pool table, shooting pool, and uh, there's not much else to do up there at that time of the season. Sure. Yeah, so the days was, the days are so short up there in the winter. I, I lit I lived in um, northern Wyoming for a while, and then was spent a lot of time in Montana. And people just don't understand how how short the days are, especially up there in Augusta. I mean, that is, is. that's the the top of the the, the world there. <laughs> it is. It is in in gorgeous country. The wind blows most of the year. I remember, I remember several times over the Fourth of July it would snow uh, more than once. I mean, it happened numerous times when I was little. Um, so we'd get random weather, but it was always pretty in a great place. And, uh, um, you know, I think it, <clears throat> I think it makes a person be able to have those opportunities. It makes you more, more efficient and kind of self-reliable. Mm -hmm. uh, so yeah, yeah, it was a good, it was a good time. And so both of your folks are, um, creative and artistic as well. And so what, can you talk a little bit about them and, and their influence on you as a kid? Yeah. Uh, my father is Buckeye Blake, and he's a he's a very well known Western artist. And uh, his mother was a was an artist as well, and so it's kind of runs in his family, his side of the family. 
Uh, he was raised in Southern California, Nevada, and his father rodeoed and ranched and was a government trapper. And so dad moved around the West quite a bit as well. Um, so he was always an artist. And I, I, I grew up quite a bit in his studio watching him create works and illustrate and do tons of stuff. And, and I was lucky enough to get to see that. Um, and my mom was a photographer for a long time and a journalist. And so we had a dark room in the house. She was always developing photos. I got yelled at numerous times for opening the door when she was developing things. <laughs> um, and so they were both very, both very creative and still are very much so. Uh, but we were always ha- having that, having that background, having parents like that. I was drugged to so many museums as a little kid everywhere. Uh, yeah. I mean, we went, we went to London and we went, we went to Washington and New York and I was, I was drugged to more museums by the time I was 10 than probably most kids, you know, in their lifetime. Did you enjoy it as a kid? You know, I, I wish I would have enjoyed it more. I, at that age, it's hard to take that kind of thing in. I think, uh, your mind's elsewhere. You're wanting to do other things. You're kind of probably a little pouty and wanting to, wanting to get out of there a little bit. Uh, I remember, I do remember going to the Russell Museum in Great Falls a lot. My father was uh, active with certain things going on there, and so we would go. and I would get to kill time by walking around the museum, and I would always, I would always be staring at Russell's illustrated letters. Uh, they always, they always tended to catch my eye, and so I would stare at those and look at the, the great little drawings of wolves and bears and Indians and little happenings and very, very well said little little drawings that actually told stories. Mm -hmm. Um, So between that and I had Will James books growing up and we'd read those. And, and my father always had other artists coming to visit. So they were always very creative together. They would always do fun things and take clay and, and make random little things and be cutting hair off the horse's manes and adding it to the clay and painting them and just funny little objects of different stuff. Very comical. Um, So it was, I guess imprinted on me would be the best way to put it, whether I liked it or not. And how much art were you creating at that time? I mean, were you, were you pretty prolific at that, at that point as a kid? I mean, was it something that you enjoyed or was it just something that was kind of always around and just kind of soaked into your psyche over the years or maybe both? You know, it, uh, it was definitely flowing out of me. I drew on every single piece of paper in school. I got yelled at all the time. I'm seeing uh, a common theme there. You getting yelled at a lot. <laughs> I, uh, I, I mean, I was always drawing on paper all the time. Do always doodling always. And yeah. not, not that I liked it or not, but I was constantly doing it. I always found myself doing it. It was, it was a natural process. Um, dad would always give me scrap mat board and I would do little, do little things. I remember one year during the Augusta rodeo, which is a huge event up there. I did uh, little buttons. I took cardboard and cut out circles, and I would draw a bullhead or a bucking horse. And I was probably ten, and everybody would park up and down the streets. And so I set up in the front yard with a chair, like a little lemonade stand. But instead, I was selling little these little mat board buttons with a pin on the back, and it said Augusta Rodeo. And I do a little drawing on each one, and I sold those for about fifty cents a pop. Uh, so it was it was always there, whether I liked it or not. It was. It was, you know, part of me and what was happening, I guess, is the best way. Yeah. And so when did rodeo uh, become a big part of your life? Uh, 
we moved to, we uprooted, we kept our place in Montana, but mom and dad, uh, they kind of felt they wanted to get a better education for me and, and be around some more people and some more culture. And so we moved to, uh, Haley, Idaho, the beginning of my junior year of high school. Yep. Um, and it's a really neat area, pretty artsy little area. And there's a lot of, uh, a lot of stuff going on and still a smaller area. It's not too, not too massive, not, not blown out yet. Mm-hmm. And we, we've raised cutting horses for a long time. So there was a lot of cutting horse events in that area and it was just a really neat little spot. So <clears throat> we went there and I'd been showing cutting horses and ridden horses forever, but they had a rodeo team, uh, at the high school. And I thought I'd try out and I, for some reason thought I should ride bulls. Uh, so mom and dad weren't very pleased, but they said, if I was going to do it, I needed to learn. So there was a rodeo school coming up that winter in twin falls. And, uh, I went to it with a couple buddies and I'd never been on a bull before in my life. Uh, so we all went, I had no idea what I was getting into mom. I know mom and dad were less than pleased. Um, but I got on, I got on seven practice bulls and I stayed on seven practice bulls. It came, it came pretty natural just with the balance and everything, riding cutters. It wasn't, <clears throat> it wasn't the most difficult thing in the world and there was a bit of a rush out of it. So that was kind of the start of that. So, uh, that very first season I made it, uh, I think I ended up got, got second or third in state and went to the high school finals that year. Um, my bull at the high school finals was only about my 15th bull ever getting on. Wow. Uh, and then the next year, I did team roping and bull riding and did the same thing, went to, went to nationals. And uh, I found, I think I found some part of bull riding interesting. It was, uh, it was uh, stressful, uh, but there was a neat life to it. I had a lot of good friends, and we traveled around, and you got to see neat areas. And there was a, it, was a, it was a fun, fast-paced rock star life for a little bit is what it was. So were you doing that? You were doing that in high school, and then you continued doing that during college. Um, I did. I did high school through college and, and professionally for a little bit. Um, and then I and then I got run over one time at a bull riding, and uh, I, I guess my logic kicked in. Uh, I'm a huge fly fisherman, and I was fly fishing on the river near our house in Sun Valley with a, with an arm and a sling. <laughs> and I've uh, done that before. <laughs> So I, uh, mom, we had a, we had a really nice, really beautiful bread uh, cutting horse gelding and I still have him now. And mom knew I wanted him and she came to me and she said, I'll give you this horse if you don't get on again. And, uh, I thought, you know what, I've, I've done pretty well riding bulls. I made some money and had a good time. All my friends are pretty busted up. Uh, guys that have made it to the NFR that I traveled with really, really, uh, incredibly talented guys. And I thought, you know what, I'm, I'm okay at it. I'm not great. This isn't my calling. I'd be pretty bummed out if I got banged up enough where I could never ride a horse again. I know it's putting my parents through hell. They would never watch. Dad would go, but he'd pace the bleachers. Mom would never watch, even if it was on TV and I was standing next to her later on. Uh, and I thought, I really want that horse. Uh, so that was kind of that was kind of the decision. It was just to... It was just a, a logic call. I, I knew there was a future I had, and that wasn't it, I guess. Do you think that if you had not had the art that was a part of your life, and let's say the, the option was quit rodeoing and go you know, work in a mine, 
would you have continued rodeoing? You think? Do you think it was having that art, which is all, which is an adventure in itself, although it's on the other end of the spectrum? I mean, do you think that that made it made that decision a little more easier? Because I'm sure you had buddies who stuck with rodeo well past when they should have been doing it because it was kind of the best option. You, do you see what I'm saying? Uh, a lot of them, and a lot of them are still doing it. Really I'm trying to do it. Yeah. Um, you know. I don't know. I don't know if it was the art at that time period, but I knew it was something else. I knew there was something else that was pulling me. I wanted, I knew there was things I wanted. I wanted to have a ranch. I wanted to run cattle. I, there was other things I enjoyed that were important to me. Uh, maybe I, I've talked a lot with my friends of, of that time period and cause it's, it's, that's a, that's a whole different lifetime ago now. Um, and it's the ignorance is bliss and, and, a lot of those guys haven't experienced other stuff maybe. And so they don't know what they're missing, but at the same time, they're enjoying it wholeheartedly what they're doing. It's a, it's a great time and it's a lot of camaraderie to it. And, uh, and it's a rush. And so, so I don't know, maybe it was that I was exposed to other things and I knew there was some other stuff I wanted to do. Uh, but, but at that time period I knew, I know I wanted that horse that my mom was offering, and I knew there was some other stuff that I was interested in. Uh, and so, yeah. So I read uh, that you you went to college to study art, kind of during this time period when when you're you had competing passions with the rodeo, and that you just art school just didn't click with you. Can you can you talk a little bit about that? I'm always interested because a lot of artists that I've spoken with have said the exact same thing that art school wasn't really teaching creativity. It was kind of teaching a formula to follow. Um, and so what was your experience in art school like? Uh, I flunked out of my art classes. (laughs) (laughs) I think I flunked all of my art classes, to be honest with you. And it wasn't for lack of try. It was, I was off rodeo and I was doing other stuff. And even when I was there, my mind wasn't in it. It Mm -hmm. was very, um, it was very controlled and it was very formula to me. Um, it, it, it made me feel like they had given us a coloring book and we were having to color within these lines. And and not that I wanted to go all Jackson Pollock and start spitting paint against the wall and do random stuff, but it was very, it was just really basic and so controlled. And um, it, 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 it didn't hold my interest at all. It really didn't. Sure. Uh, I would guess after spending your childhood with so many well-established artists, you know, who were, who were doing such unique work. Um, it, it, that was almost just being reined in way too much, having to sit in a classroom and listen to theory when you've been living it for you know 18 years at that point. Yeah. It's, uh, I got yelled at. I had a really great, really great life drawing instructor. And I, I transferred to Cal Poly from Montana state and, um, I was breaking Colts and working at the Hearst Ranch while I was out there. Really just a gorgeous place and a good time. And I went to go see some new country and I had this really great, really great teacher there. And I guess the first three or four classes, I enjoyed it. Uh, And I was probably late for class every time and he'd probably had enough of it. And, and he might've seen some potential. It might've been the other part of it, but, but he called me out in front of the class and kicked me out of class pretty much and said, Mm -hmm. I wasn't going to make it as an artist. Uh, and I, I, my feelings weren't hurt. I didn't lose any sleep over it. I really didn't care. Mm-hmm. It was, it was one more reason for me to just not go to class. I was fine with that. So, 
I found the manifest of the list of students uh, not too long ago that from from that class, and uh, I was the only one that made it. That's I, what I was I was wondering about that. I was going to ask that before you even told that story. How, how many other of your classmates yeah. made it as professional artists? Or just you, huh? Yeah, I got bored and and with the wild, wild internet, and and I googled all the names on that list, and none of them came up anywhere. Not a single one of them. Uh, so it's it was interesting to see. It was kind of a I smiled, but you know he was probably right. I probably should have stuck it out, tried harder. And there is something to be said for being trained and classically trained and learning basics and going through those motions. I know a lot of very incredible artists now that went to great art schools and I'm very jealous of their talent. There's a lot they learned and, uh, you know, it would probably would have been in my best interest, but at the same time, I, I know plenty of artists that are self-taught and are, are, are super talented as well. And so I think it's, <clears throat> we have no control over our past. It is what it is. We can always do the best we can now to, uh, you know, practice and learn and, and teach ourselves. But at the time it wasn't right for me. Uh, you could have given me a million dollars and I wouldn't have sat there. It just, it, I was getting pulled a different direction. So when your mom offered you the horse and you decided to, to hang up rodeo for good, how did you, did, was it at that point you said, <laughs> all right, I'm, I'm going to make a go of it as a professional artist or was it, did it take longer than that to kind of come around to that idea or that reality? No, it, it took a little longer. I, I took that horse and I took a couple other horses I had and I, I started roping a bunch, uh, going to team ropings and, and, uh, the winters up North were so brutal. And, and I knew, I knew Texas fairly well. We'd been coming to Texas since I was a little kid and I knew the Fort Worth area and I knew there was a lot of horse events. It was kind of the Mecca. And, uh, so I loaded up and I, I went to Texas and I rented a house and I started going to a lot of team ropings with some friends and entering rodeos and, and team roping events and quarter horse shows. And I did that pretty pretty consistently for about two years, nonstop. We were uh, we were practicing we were practicing four or five hours a day. Wow. And I had probably six or seven horses, and we had a hundred head of steers, and we would we would we would rope nonstop and and doing team you know team roping any events with anything you it's muscle memory and it's a repetitive action and to get good you have to put in the time and practice unless unless you just want to donate your money all the time mm-hmm. um, so we 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 practiced and we hauled nonstop and and I did well I did did great at it it was fun and went to the Court Horse World Show and and did great team roping at other ropings and made some nice horses um, but it was in that time period where I where I hung it up. Uh, I, I've been going nonstop and I was getting burnt out. And, uh, I think I started going back to some ranches to help towards the end of that deal mm-hmm. with some good ranch owners that I know and some, some very well-known cutting horse trainers that ranched. And I kind of started going back to the basics with how I was started in Montana, you know, going back to brandings and helping gather cattle and, and, uh, going back to the foundation of how horses were made, you know, getting to enjoy, getting to enjoy a horse for what they can do. Uh, and so I, I pulled the easel out and started painting and started going back to ranches and, uh, slowly sold off my team roping stuff and changed all my gear and, and just went back to, went back to kind of how I started on the deal, I guess. Got it. And so I, I read online that you, 
entered a, a photo into a contest at, at one point and um, just it sounded like almost on a whim. And can you tell that story about about because it seemed like that was kind of your coming out as a as a um, well-known artist at, at this particular art show? Um, uh, so when I when I started when I started painting and deciding, OK, this is what I'm going to try to do for a bit. I, um, I thought, okay, you're going to, I'm going to, I'm going to have to have to do X amount of pieces and go to some shows and try to try to see if I can do this. You know, if I'm going to do it, I'm going to do it right with anything, with rodeo, with anything else. You, you put yourself out there, you hang out your shingle and you, you make a go of it. So, um, I guess I did 10 or 12 paintings that were acceptable to me at the time that I didn't want to light on fire. (laughs) And I got them all framed, and I entered. Uh, I entered the Fippin Art Show in Prescott, Arizona, and that was my very first art show. And uh, I I did a painting of a of a ranch horse in a stock trailer, and it was from one of the ranches I worked at. And I just thought it was a neat shot. I hadn't seen anybody do it. It was it was new to me, and it was a simple, clean image. It wasn't overdone. It was. Uh, uh, something about it was really basic, and uh, I had a connection to, I guess. Um, and so I entered it at the art show, and it, it it won the watercolor. It was the first deal, and I had a great show. And I had eight thousand people wanting prints of that piece, and and it was a it was a good jump start, is what it was. With I think with anything and anyone, it helps if you get a not not so much an attaboy or a pat on the back, but a little bit of a, a little bit of something saying, "Hey, you're doing okay." You know, that's a good start. Uh, rather than a giant, giant kick in the groin, you know. Um, yeah, I would imagine. I'm not much of an artist myself, but I love talking with artists, and it sounds like for a lot of them on a daily basis, it's, it's a kick in the groin. <laughs> you know, just it trying is. to create this stuff, and so I think getting some external validation. Um, whether you really need it or not, uh, I think it's it. It seems that that's always more of a positive than a negative for folks, and it helps them because you're you're doing such a solitary type of work. You know, you could drive yourself nuts after a while. I would imagine. You can, you can. My uh, my father calls the easel the other woman <laughs> because <laughs> because it it demands so much of your time, whether you want to or not. There's a lot of artists that are uh, they're drawn to that time period and wanting to go create. And it is a solitary life. It really is. It's for any artist. They know that it's a, you're in there by yourself. You might want to be somewhere else and somebody else might want you to be there with them, but you can't. It's a, it's a very odd, uh, it's a very odd feeling. Have you ever read the book called the war of art by Stephen Pressfield? I haven't. Uh, a good artist friend of mine has mentioned it to me before, and I still haven't read it. It's uh, it's really good, and I think it can be applied to, to anything you're doing, whether it's actual art or writing or you know some sort of entrepreneurial venture, anything that where you're creating something out of nothing. And he talks, he calls it the, the this force that gets in your head, the resistance. And he's always just con- talking about how the resistance is, um, you know, trying to convince you to quit or to be, you know, be slack or be sloppy or come up with different excuses. And it's a pretty interesting, um, pretty interesting story. I, I highly recommend it. Um, speaking of that kind of thing, what what is your daily routine like when you're creating art? Because it seems like you're 
when you fo- it sounds like from your rodeo and from your art when you when it comes down to focus you're focused so do you have any special um, daily routines that you that you follow to to get going or or you know there's this stereotype of artists needing to wait to be inspired but most artists I've talked to they treat it like they're going to the to to the factory to work um, what does your day look like uh you know there are there are artists that treat it that way the 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 whole nine to five mentality mm-hmm. uh, i I wish I had that I, and I'm trying to get better at that i'm very I'm very guilty of being a horrible procrastinator um, I know the feeling <laughs> my my father's great at that he puts the time in I've seen him do that over the years uh, I know a lot of artists that are very good at that and treating it like a job i I go through phases and bouts of it. And I and I battle that, and I've battled that forever. I'm very uh, I'm very whimsical with my time. I guess is the best way to put it. I I go through seasons and times, and and there's time when my talent leaves me where I can't draw a stick horse. It's a very frustrating deal. Uh, and so it's gotten better over time. I've learned how to work through it. How do you and work through the, that? Uh, you know, I. I keep little moleskin sketchbooks and generally my routine is I'll get up in the morning and I'll make coffee. Uh, and I'll try to sit with my sketchbook for a half hour or something while I drink coffee. Uh, at least every day I try to do it every day, even if I'm off at a ranch somewhere. Um, and I'll try to sketch a little bit. If I don't have my sketchbooks, I'll sketch on a, a napkin or somebody's bedroll. It seems like I'm always sketching on something still. So just to keep it fresh. Um, so I'll do that for a little bit in the morning and then generally, Whatever I have on the easel, I'll, I'll, I'll try to go to work and put in a few hours every day. Uh, and I, there's times where I walk by the studio and I glance in and it's like a, a dirty look. And I, I just sneak on by the door to the studio and go hide somewhere for a little bit. And I'll walk by again and I can see whatever it is in there just staring daggers at me. And so I hide out for a little bit. And then sometimes you can't get me out of the studio. Uh, I'll go through phases where I'm in here from early in the morning till four in the morning for three weeks straight, just knocking pieces out left and right. Um, so I, I don't know. There's, you know, there's times, uh, spring and fall gathers. I'm out on the wagon and at ranches working. And when I'm there, I want to be on the easel. And when I'm on the easel, I want to be out in my bedroll and in a teepee somewhere and riding horses. Uh, <laughs> so it's a, uh, it's an it's an odd little give and take, but I think it keeps me from getting stale. Uh, I know a lot of artists that get stale from from sitting there too long, and and they they lose their creative inspiration from that. So when you're uh, when you go out and work on these ranches, and and how, how does that? I mean, I'm sure that is a big help to your art, just for new ideas and new perspectives. But can you talk a little bit about how that process of actually getting out there? on the ranches um, influences your work and changes your work? Uh, I, I think the biggest part of it is knowing your material. I, I, I see a lot of great artists that maybe don't know their material very well. Not that it takes away from their work and maybe nobody will notice. Uh, 99% of collectors might never notice that that artist doesn't know what they're painting. It's still a beautiful piece, uh, but there's still people out there that know maybe something's wrong. So growing up in this and going to do that is uh, it's what makes me want to create things. Maybe something I saw uh, 
I, I get to work on some gorgeous ranches, and so every every part of it is is fun to me. From getting up in the morning with the crew, uh, and a lot of them are, are dear friends of mine, and having coffee at four in the morning, uh, you know, waiting to saddle horses in the dark, going out, maybe watching a wreck that day, some horse blows up. Uh, there's there's all these little things you see that a lot of people never get to see. Uh, so. So later on, there's things I remember, and I'll sketch out, or, or I'll want to recreate, or, you know, hopefully try to get down on canvas. Even if, if I'm lucky, I get down at ten percent of that. Um, but it's, it's constantly, uh, you know, it's constantly putting images in my head that and I, that that come up later. Do you? Um, so, so you've got images in your head, and it sounds like you know when you're out on these ranches, you're you're just constantly taking mental notes. Do you ever take photographs and use those? Uh, you know, bring those back to the studio with you, or how I do, do you, you do? I do. I, I you know I used to carry I used to carry a larger like a Canon Rebel with me, a bigger camera, and it was a pain. I hated it. I, I don't like pulling my camera out. I all these ranches I go to, I'm on payroll. I'm, I'm the same as anybody else. I'm getting paid to work. Um, so to me, it's embarrassing to pull a camera out. And when I do, I feel like I'm not doing my job. Um, so over the years I've made myself take a little, a little pocket digital camera and I keep it in my leggings pocket, my, my shop pocket. And I'll make myself pull it out, take some pictures every day when I'm working somewhere, you know, a couple in the morning or a few through the day. Or if I see something that I'm not, if there's something going on that I'm not required to go help with and I can take a picture, I'll take some quick and put it up before anybody notices. Uh, Maybe how the light was that day or a certain group of cattle or how somebody looked on a horse when a horse was blowing up, whatever it was. Uh, Just something so I have for reference later on. And... Then I'll 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 do sketches that are completely not related to the photos I took. Uh, I'll have an idea of something I want to do, and whatever it is, a horse wreck going on, or somebody saddling a horse. And then I'll I'll remember, oh hey, I've got I've got photos from this ranch at that time in the morning, and I'll go back and look at them, and I'll print off a couple on a shabby little printer I have, and I'll tack them up on the wall near my easel. Uh, and I'll use them for reference. I'll, I'll start drawing out from my sketchbook, you know, larger, kind of what I wanted to do. And I'll, I'll search that, that reference to get my proportions right and kind of how it was. And I'll use those photos a little bit, maybe halfway through the painting. Generally, by halfway through the painting, I've gotten rid of those photos. And I'm just kind of painting on how I know it should be. You know, I've, I've done this long enough. And I know what it smells like out there and how the dust looks like and what cattle look like. And what the reflective colors look like that I'm, you know, I, anybody that's done it that long shouldn't have to use photos anymore. Um, so there comes a point where I kind of set those down. Sure. Um, I've noticed a lot of your work revolves around different bucking animals, whether it's horses or bulls, even jackalopes. (laughs) And, uh, so what is it about the bucking animal that's so attractive attractive to you? Because you you paint it so well, you spend a big portion of your life actually riding bucking animals. What what is it that it, that is so attractive to, about that to you? Uh, I it probably I'm sure I'm sh- sure somehow if I were to lay on a couch and somebody were to <laughs> broid me, I'd uh, it would go, it, it would go back to it, I'm sure it would go back to looking at Will James 
sketches when I was little or Charlie Russell bucking horse pieces or Remington's. It's to me, to me, a bucking horse is kind of the iconic symbol of the West. It's a, uh, to me, there's nothing else that really says cowboy or the West more than a bucking horse. Mm-hmm. Uh, and it's, it's a, it's a common, it's a common thing. It, it really is. It's uh it's something you see and, and it happens every time I'm at a ranch and every time a horse blows up, all the other guys, they start hooping and hollering and laughing. And it's a, it's happened to me. It's happened to every one of my friends. It's just part of it. But there's a neat, uh, there's always a neat force and power and shape that I'm attracted to with it. Uh, you know, an arch of a back, uh, the way the guy leans back, a quirt, uh, the dust. There's a there's a really a neat strength and momentum that I'm drawn to with it, uh, whether it's a horse or a jackalope or whatever it is. Um, and so I, I kind of find myself going back and doing these consistently and trying to get better and better in every one and doing different variations and uh everybody does bucking horses it's a common it's a common deal there's millions of bucking horses that have been painted and 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 a million more that will be painted uh but there's still something i guess there's still something magical about them for me uh so i i'll continue to paint them yeah it's about as raw as you can get you know as far as animal man versus animal or man not versus but trying to control an animal um it is there's nothing more raw that i can think of really no it's um it's a pretty basic it's a pretty basic deal it really is it's uh it's a test uh it's a test of a guy's sand and um i've seen a lot of horses that can't jump over a pop can when they buck uh that are that are fat worthless toads um (laughs) but but when there's something when, when there's one that really gets it on and there's a guy that can ride and just a hell of a scene it's it's tough to not not watch and or or remember or try to try to capture that yeah that that makes perfect sense um when you look back at your art over the last let's just say 10 years what uh what are the biggest changes you've seen in your art uh well, for for majority of my career, I've been a watercolorist, and there's not a lot of watercolorists out there. It's a it's a very small window, and um, so I've had to compete with with the attention of oil painters, with with getting the viewers that that stare at oil paintings all day. And so, my big challenge was learning to paint. Uh, bolder and brighter and not so pale, which is very easily done with watercolors. Uh, watercolors are a delicate, uh, a transparent medium, and for the most part, are are pretty. They're just they're kind of subdued, mm-hmm. for lack of a better way to put it. And so, to compete with something else on a wall, you have to you have to um, really have your values cranked and. And do something that's really, really appealing and eye-catching. So that I think that's been one of my biggest struggles is is doing that, finding, finding, uh, kind of finding my way through that, and and finding images that are are bold and things that still speak to people, and that I can do in watercolors that 
that can compete for the attention that other work gets. I guess I guess was the best way to to go about it. Yeah, that makes sense. Um, and when you're creating art, how much how much of it is you doing just what comes to mind, and then how much of it is thinking about that? You know, thinking about how do I make this stand out from the crowd of everything of of you know the, the crowd of all the other artwork out there. Um, I, I imagine there's kind of a, a fine balance there that. And I, I would guess it goes back and forth over time. But, but do, I mean, do you do you think a lot about how how will this be received by the folks that love my art, or is it, or you do you operate in a vacuum? Uh, I think a lot of artists are are haunted by trying to create something that's new and original and striking and hasn't been done a thousand times, mm-hmm. and is something original and. It's something that they're excited to do. It's um, it's nearly impossible to do something that hasn't been done already, and so I think I, I think that's a constant battle that a, a majority of artists have is finding something that they truly love and want to do, and uh, I guess speaks to them. We're we're all we're all trying to do that. It's a a friend of mine who's a sculptor in a, in a very talented sculptor. He always tells me, and he's he's told me probably fifty times. I think his memory is shot, but he tells me uh, when we talk about the same thing done over and over. He says it's not it's not about doing the same thing over. It's about doing it in a new and brilliant light. And I guess the best way to translate it is that is it it's doing it in your your way. How can you how can you create that scene the way you want to tell it and in your style and in your fashion and and that artist's expression is the best way. So regardless of if we do something the same, it's, it's our it's our expression and our intention of what goes on that canvas. Uh, yeah, but finding, yeah. finding that is the hard part. Definitely. Well, you, you've definitely got a unique style because I, I subscribe to so many different artists on, on Instagram and different social media and I, I'm just kind of bombarded with this stuff all day. But every single time one of yours comes up, I know exactly whose it is and I, it catches my attention and it's, it's pretty amazing. And I, I don't know, you know, I'm just not a, a skilled artist. I don't know enough about it, but all I know is what I like and what catches my attention. And it's a hundred percent of the time when I'm flying through that Instagram feed, when I see your stuff, I know exactly who whose it is and I stop and, and admire it. So I don't. I wish I could explain it or I could tell you why that is, but it is what it is, and so you're you're doing something right. <laughs> Thanks. Um, Thanks. <laughs> and so, one more question in this category. Um, you know, you're obviously extremely talented, and there there are a lot of extremely talented artists out there who have not been able to make it um, as a professional artist. You think about a lot of people you went to school with. I mean, I, they were they had talent, they they had an interest, but for one reason or another, it didn't work out it seems that there's the art and then there's the business of getting the art out there. Um, what steps have you taken or, or what are your thoughts on the business side of things and, and getting it, getting your figuring out ways to market yourself so that the word gets out? Um, Cause I, I would imagine that could be somewhat uncomfortable if you don't have the right person, if you don't have the personality, that's a big self, big time self promoter. You know what I mean? Uh, I think I think by nature that most artists are not good business people. Yeah. 
it's it's a different side of the brain. It is. I agree. Um, I think I think a majority of artists that have made it have somebody else in their corner, whether it's their wife or a publicist or somebody pushing and handling that side. I've I've been very fortunate. My father's a very reclusive individual, um, and if it wasn't for my mother, I don't think he would have made it. Hmm. But growing up with her and seeing what a, a good business person she is and a go-getter, I, I think that was ingrained in me as well. Uh, I, I definitely think the business side is the is the hardest part of the art world. Um, it is competitive. There's so much out there. And nowadays, everything is at the touch of the buyer's fingertips. They can they can search an image to go buy. They don't even have to they don't have to go in a gallery anymore and ask the ask the curator to say, hey, you know, show me what you have and tell me about this. They can everything's so instant. Um, and so nowadays it, it's it's a different market, it's a different world with it. Um, I don't know. I don't know if all the buyers are as educated as they used to be. I think a lot are. I want to say a lot of buyers and collectors are poorly educated on what good art is, but that's okay as long as they. I, I guess it comes down to as long as they enjoy the work and they know what, that they're happy with what they're looking at. Um. My father, I don't think I would have done this if I hadn't have seen my father make a living at it uh, mm-hmm. through hard through hard times and, and 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 good as well. But I watched him put in the time and even through hard times keep his nose down and work and and have a good work ethic and create good work. And uh, I found a I found a oh maybe it was a Southwest Art Magazine, one of the art magazines a few years ago, and it might have been in. It was an older one. It was from 1984 or 88 or something. It was an older one. And uh, he was the only artist. I, I bought it. I bought it because he he had the cover and he was in there and I'd never seen it. And uh, I went through the entire magazine and there was some beautiful artwork in there by other artists. All the ads. Typical art magazine. Lots of ads. Shows coming up. Uh, tons of great photos. And um, I haven't heard of any of those other artists. He was the only one in there that's still going. And it wasn't for these other people their lack of having talent. Uh, but for some reason they didn't, they're not doing it. I don't know if they got burnt out or the economy didn't work with them or they weren't selling. Um, but, but there are a good handful of artists now that, um, they're, they're still going, they're still making a living at it. They, they know how to keep their head down and work and create good work and get through the hard times. And I, I think that's, I think that's part of this career we've chosen is it's it's a give and take. You're you don't have to spend a nine to five or stuck in traffic going to a job sitting in front of a desk and and doing that, but at the same time you don't know when your next check's coming. Uh there's nobody to tell you to get up in the morning and go to work. Uh there's there's two sides to it. But there's a there's a complete freedom to it if you know how to manage it well. Uh, and that business side of it can really can really break a person. There's some, there's some incredible artists out there. I know, just I, I'm amazingly je- jealous of their talents, and they don't make it. They're not making it. They were done years ago, and they quit. They're doing something else now. Mm-hmm. Um, and it's a, it's a hard deal. It really is. Oh yeah, I mean it's everybody's dream to you know. I think most people, even non-artistic people, would think if somebody said, "Hey, would you like to be a prof- Would you like to be a professional artist?" That sounds awesome. 
You know, it's like being a professional writer or anything. I mean, but it, the reality yep. is it's it's extremely hard just to even produce the work and then to make yourself stand out from the crowd is a whole nother level. So it is, um, it is. I can't believe we've already been talking for 45 minutes, which is insane. I feel like it's been about <laughs> 10 minutes. Um, and so I want to be respectful of your time and not, I want you to You're keep, fine. You're keep fine. doing the important artwork and not <coughs> listening to me. But um, I've got a few uh, questions that I've asked um, everybody I've had on the podcast, and I've gotten some really interesting answers. And so I want to run a few of them by you. Okay. Um, okay. Do you have any favorite books that or books that you recommend to others about the American West or really any favorite books, period? Uh, I'm, a, I'm a huge Cormac McCarthy fan the the border trilogy with all the pretty horses and uh, the crossing and cities of the plains uh, they're uh, they they kind of they speak to me with the, the west and how things were and and the lifestyle that I've grown up in uh, you know young cowboys kind of making their own path uh, and it it's I, I bet I reread those books. I don't know, maybe once every couple of years, and they're still very powerful to me. They're uh, the Will Jan- they're works they're of great. Art. They're great. He, he's, I'm very huge fan of, of Cormac's. I, I've hear, I hear he lives out of Santa Fe, and he's super reclusive, and people glimpse sighting, sightings of him every now and then. And I'm, I, I go to Santa Fe quite a bit. I, I always hope to bump into him nonchalantly one day, but I'm not <clears throat> not holding my breath on that. Um, <laughs> I'm a big Thomas McGuane fan, mm-hmm. uh, and he's a dear friend of my family's. And oh, I really? really? Yep. I, I I ran their ranch in Montana for a few years, and I'm I, I his books Missouri Breaks and Rancho Deluxe and uh, his newer ones. I'm I, I'm a huge fly fisherman. I grew up fly fishing in the rivers of Montana and Idaho. So, uh, The Longest Silence is is one of my favorite books of of his and and overall of my collection. Um. It seems like a majority of my books are are somebody out in the middle of nowhere, which mm-hmm. I can relate to. It's a that's more home to me than anything. So I tend to pick books where it's a generally a one person out in the middle uh, of an endless vast space. So yeah, yeah. I'm reading Blood Meridian right now, and man, that, cra- that is intense. <laughs> it is. It's it's a bit barbaric. It, it really is. And that's the thing consistently. So many people told me I needed to read it. And I, I, I rarely read fiction. I'm just, I, I go through so much. I'm obsessed with history. But people kept telling me I need to read it. And um, and they, they, every single one of them said, you need to watch out, though, because it's extremely violent. And they were, they were correct. But he yeah. he's an artist. I mean, the, the way he writes, it's it's like poetry or something. I don't know how somebody could write one paragraph, much less, you know, 300 pages of that. It's It's really amazing. It's a, it's a, it's an artistic talent. It really is. It's, it's part of a, I worry that it's part of a fleeting talent of people anymore of, of, you know, not growing up in front of a TV and having something else to do and exploring what you're capable of. Um, and so there was this age of writers and artists and people that had these incredible talents. And I, I think people still have all those talents now, but they're never pushed to their limits to find them. Uh, they're too preoccupied doing other things. I agree. And I think it's a, it, 
to, to d- fully discover those talents, you've got to struggle and you got to kind of get your ass whipped a little bit. You do. And you do. these phones and the internet gives you instant, um, instant relief from that kind of thing. You don't have to struggle. You can take your attention elsewhere and get an instant fix of something to, to grab your attention versus yep. sitting in a room and, Yep. Like I said, getting your ass whipped. And so, um, <laughs> I, you know, I, I think uh, I completely agree with you. It's going to be interesting to see where things stand 15, 20 years from now. It is. It's, uh, there's something to be said for being humbled. And it's amazing what it can do for your character, uh, being in those positions. And so we're, we're in this giant age of self-gratification and, and instant, you know, an instant pat on the back and, and instant results and, uh, there's a lot less. Uh, I, I don't know if a lot of people ever understand uh, pride in what they do. Um, I, I work with a lot of great, great, a lot of great cowboys that are great hands on ranches, and um, we have this conversation a lot. You know, you go put in a full day's work, and you're surrounded by other guys that are doing the same thing, and and it's it's satisfying. It really is. It's it's one of the most satisfying things out there. The only other thing like that for me is when I finish a, a big painting and I don't want to light it on fire, but <laughs> that, that I'm actually happy with it because I've put in the time and there's a part of you in that. And I wish more people would experience stuff like that. It's it's a it's a fleeting it's a fleeting thing. It really is. Do you have any kids? I do. I have a I have a wonderful, happy little three and a half year old boy. That's quite the character. I've got a two-year-old girl that is the, oh, geez. quite oh, the character as well. And so, I, yeah. what are you? What are you doing? This is some uh, selfish advice I need for myself. <laughs> but what are you doing to? What are you going to do to keep him away from? Keep him? I don't know. Not protected, but but not getting brainwashed by all this this internet short attention span kind of stuff. Uh, I always said I was going to be one of those people that would not let my kid watch watch movies on my phone while we're at a restaurant, Mm -hmm. but it has saved me once or twice. Uh, I bet I've only done it two times. And it was a, it was a godsend because he was trying to burn the restaurant down at the time. So we're getting on a plane later this week and I'm going to break my rule for that. Yeah. There's it's, it's, it's a helpful little tool sometimes. Um, you know, I keep him, I keep him busy. You know, he, he's a really, really sweet little boy and, and a talented little boy. And, um, Loves horses. My mom gave him one of her best horses, this gray mare, Bonnie. And so he goes and rides with me. And he's, uh, he's, I, I'm worried, He's, but he's very fearless already. And uh, I have to keep an eye on him. And it, it won't be very long before he's out there helping me gather cattle. And he already talks about wanting to go chase wild cows with dad. Um, so he's I'm thankful he, he knows that already and he's he's wanting to do it and when i'm in the studio i bought him a little teeny easel and i have it on the floor in here and while i'm painting he wants to paint um i turned to my back here about six months ago and i had just finished a large painting a uh, big watercolor and i stepped out of the room for i kid you not it was one minute i went into the other room to get my coffee out of the microwave i came back in he was sitting at my stool at the easel he had my paintbrush and cadmium red. <laughs> he looked. He looked at me and smiled and took the brush and a giant streak across the painting. Oh my gosh! Which is irreversible. They're coming back from that. It was done. It was a ten thousand dollar painting turned into a, a 
this very modern work of art and, made it very, and it's about done. I, I, I bet I had a half hour left on it and to sign my name and it was done. And, uh, and I just smiled. I did my best smile and I thanked him for helping me. And I sat and painted with him for about three hours. Uh, and that piece will hang in his wall forever. Oh yeah. Whether, he, whether he wants to or not, that is his punishment. That is his, his now. Um, but he's involved in that stuff, and I there's a river. The Brazos River is close, and I take him, and I started him fishing, and uh, he he likes to be out, wants to, be out, and she never wants a kid to do anything. But you can you can present them with options and opportunities. I think is the best way. That's how I was presented. My dad never said he never made me go saddle my horse and take off or go out with my friends and go explore the rivers. It was what I wanted to do growing up. Uh, and so I, I think I think presented with those opportunities, I think I think majority of children will want to do that rather than sit there and do nothing. I think I think it's their uh, curious and inquisitive nature that makes them do that. All right, good. I agree with you. That's that's what I was thinking, but I wanted to make sure I wasn't completely off base. So <laughs> we might need to do this maybe like once a month and <laughs> therapy for new dads. Um, yeah. So, do you have any favorite documentaries or films that have been important to you? Um, there's a great one on Maynard Dixon that they did. A really neat, uh, Maynard Dixon is one of my favorite artists. Uh, great stylized painter, and uh, they did a really neat one on him that I've watched several times. I'm a big advocate of mustangs and wild horses, and so uh, Ben Masters had done the great one on Brandon, and I think you've had him on your on your deal. I have that uh, that, that movie is unbelievable. I, it's just it is. a great film. It, I ha- I really have to commend him. You know, they those guys aren't cowboys; they're not hands, but they did a they did a really good job. Uh, they for anybody to stick it out that far and what they did is is highly commendable and, and gets my should you know it gets my praise and anybody else that that knows their worth. Um, I have I have two Mustangs that I've adopted and that I use, and I've got other great, well-bred horses as well. So I'm at both ends of the spectrum. But uh, that was a really great, great thing for me to see. It was neat. It's got a lot of it's got a lot of magic and power to it. And uh, it for anybody that knows horses, it it says a lot. There was a lot of feeling and heart that went into that. So uh, uh, if you talk to Mr. Masters, let him know. I, I thought they did a great job on that deal. Yeah, I will. And he's, um, you know, he, he has t- kind of leveraged that, the the, you know, fame or whatever you want to call it, he got from that film. And he's doing a lot of other important work with with, with conservation and with mustangs. And uh, yep. he's uh, he's doing great work. And uh, yeah, I, I love that film. Um, yep. Yep. So you you mentioned you love fly fishing. Are there any other activities that you love to do? Anything that may be surprising to people listening to this? <laughs> uh, I don't know if there's anything hugely surprising. I generally, you know, I used to go fish a lot more than I do now. It's hard in Texas. It's uh, it's not the same. But I, I still sneak off a few times a year and head north with a couple friends, and we'll go haunt some rivers and camp out and kind of kind of get my, get my fill or my fix. I'm a, I'm a bit of a foodie, I guess, since I've traveled around so much. Um, whether it's Indian fry bread to, to a great seven course meal at a great restaurant, I, I, I enjoy food and great food and food at shady little diners in the middle of nowhere. Probably. Um, that's kind of a, 
kind of a fun year for me. Um, I, I cook a bit, uh, a lot of green chili and homemade bread and stews. And, and uh, I don't know, I think it's my, my folks where we were at in Montana, they cooked a lot for a long time because we were in the middle of nowhere. Sure. The, the closest grocery store to get any produce, to get any vegetables that weren't in a can, we had to drive to Great Falls, which was 60 miles away. So we, we cooked a lot. Uh, after we moved from there, I don't think my mom ever cooked again. She had her, she'd had enough. So <laughs> we grew up making, you know, she, I always remember her cooking bread and making great meals. And it was a very, um, it was a very nice home gathering for me. You always invited friends over in those communities. And in the evening you'd sit out in Montana and there was always a rhubarb pie. And it's a very, um, that's a very home, you know, get back to the basics thing for me, uh, canning foods and, you know, making it yourself and doing things and having pride in, in cooking and sharing it with others. So I, I still like to cook a lot uh, and invite friends over and, and make things. And I still hunt. Um, I, I shoot a lot of dove down here and quail. Yeah. And I've got, I've always got venison and elk in the freezer. And, and uh, uh, I think that's, I think that's my other big, big passion other than fly fishing in my artwork and, and cowboying. Great. Um, here's a good question. What's the best piece of advice you've ever received? It's mm. a hard question. That is a hard question. Um, you know, I, I really don't know. I've, I really don't know. I've talked to, I've talked to, and I know so many, so many people that have done so so much with their lives that are intelligent and, uh, and, uh, just, just, just great people. And have told me so many great things. Uh, I don't, I don't know. I've had people tell me to all the way in artwork to always use your own reference materials, never use reference materials that weren't yours, which has been a big thing that I've really, really stressed with other people that ask me. And, uh, and my dad's told me so many things. Um, so I, I, I can't answer that. Really it's a hard can. question. I, that is a hard question. It's funny because I ask these questions, and I don't have my own set of answers to, to any of them. <laughs> um, and here's another one I don't have an answer to, but I'd be interested to see if you do. What is your favorite location in the West? And it could be just a town, a specific ranch, your old house up in Montana, um, anywhere that – is there one specific spot that is very special to you? Uh You know, Augusta's Augusta's always got a, a great place in my heart. That's where I grew up, and uh, I, you know, was raised there. And, and I know every bit of that prairie and those mountains there. But when we moved to Idaho, we lived on the Big Wood River uh, out of Haley and Bellevue. Oh yeah, that's beautiful. Uh, and so our house backed up to the the Big Wood right right in Bellevue. And uh, so when I really got into fly fishing, I was I was a junior in high school, and I would, in the summers, I would disappear. I would get up in the mornings and leave in the dark, and I would come home in the dark, and I might take a snack or a little fire kit in my backpack, and I would be gone. I'd be gone all day, every day. So I would make the little trip through our back pasture of the house, and I'd jump the irrigation ditch and go through the quakies, and a little trail I used, and there was a moose I'd always pass, or we'd have some bull elk down there. Uh, and I'd come to the bank of this river, this all the all the rocks, and I knew the bends, and I'd I'd head downriver, and I had the same routine for. I, I fished that river for 
you know, 10 years religiously. Mm-hmm. And I know every spot, even after high water and the floods, and it would change the angles a little bit, I would still know it didn't change it that much. It never really did. But that was that was my piece of river. And I it was odd because I'd rarely see anybody there. All the all the guides and my friends that were guides, they take people closer to catch them. So I kind of had the stretch to myself. Um, and in the summer, in the evenings, there's a lot of sagebrush on the banks. And you could smell the sage and you'd feel the air current switch and the temperature would drop. And I knew exactly what was biting at a certain time of season uh, and what to use. And I had my spots where I'd set up camp and start a fire. And, you know, it was just, uh, I think I really came of age there is the best way to put it. Uh, uh, There's a lot of people that are raised, I think there's a lot of people that are raised out and have that ability whether they trap or hunt or fish or whatever it is, and they have those places to them where they've, they, I don't know, they don't peak, but they, they grow. There's a part of them that grows, and that might have been the part that did it. Uh, and so for me, that's, that's the big wood on that stretch. Uh, and it's, I go back there every few years, and I, I sneak in. We had sold, we've sold that house since, so I, I trespass and jump through the fence, and I get back on the river, and and hang out there for a few hours. And it's, it's a sad, bittersweet deal, but it's home. Uh, and that's a, I think that's, that's my favorite spot by all means. Yeah, that's cool. There's something really cool and rare about knowing a a very small place that intimately. It just, uh, there's no way to, to, to get that level of knowledge without just putting in the time. (laughs) And, um, that's, that's really, that's a cool, cool story. Um, so next, the last question: um, If you could make a request of the listeners of this podcast, and it's basically just people that love the American West, whether they're and they express that love through art or through athletics or through writing or through conservation, but if you could make a request of these people, and that could be advice, words of wisdom, um, just some something you'd like to impart on the people listening, do you have anything? Uh. Don't litter. (laughs) (laughs) Timeless advice. I can't tell you how much litter I pick up when I'm fly fishing. It's crazy. It's crazy. I I take my pack with about a quarter of things in it just for me, and I come back full. It's incredible. Uh, It's always amazing to me. I want to find these people's house and go walk in their living room at night while they're sitting at dinner and just surprise them and, like, dump my trash on their floor. (laughs) And then just walk out and leave them, like, wondering what the hell just happened. (laughs) horrible um you know you know i don't know um i i'd say i'd say find some books on the west and educate yourself and and go find a gravel road and drive down it and take a six pack of beer and sit on the tailgate and watch a thunderstorm roll in uh there's i think i think people that have the ability to do that and and go to the west and Sit out in the sage. Uh, I think it's really good for. I think it's really good for a person's soul. I really do. Uh, I think. I think getting out of the hustle and bustle and getting to getting to the only thing you hear is yourself. I think it. I think it does a lot for a person. I think. Uh, I think it's closer to a lot of people than they realize, and they don't take that opportunity. Um, and I think. Uh, I think it's amazing what it would do for some people. I really do. Uh, 
just getting to getting to detach and go getting to go watch the clouds move around. It's uh, it's a pretty magical deal. I wholeheartedly agree with that. So, how can people find out more about you? How can they connect with you online? Um, I guess Instagram's probably the best way these days. I have a website, but it's old and outdated, and I don't even know if people use websites anymore. To be honest. <laughs> Too much. It takes too much attention. It does. To go to a website. It, it's it's a it's a whole new page you have to open on your browser. It's not worth it when you're already on Instagram. <laughs> well, I will. Uh, I'll put links to your Instagram page, and I, I highly recommend everybody needs to go to it because it's um, there's some really really cool uh, really cool works on there, and it's a good combo of your art and then parts of your life. There was there was one I saw on there a while back where it it looked like you guys were out branding, and it was unfortunately somebody's birthday and y'all gave him a beat down <laughs> I, I don't know if you've looked at the comments on that if you get a chance you should go back and the comments on that it's incredible to me uh, people offended got, uh, a lot of people offended oh very offended uh, took, took serious offense to it really and yeah a lot of people understood it uh, but a majority of people were offended they i had so many messages of people trying to figure out what in the heck was going on. They just didn't understand. And, and rightfully so that's a whole different culture that a lot of people aren't used to. It's, 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 uh, there's a lot of people that go to the grocery store and don't know where, where meat comes from. Um, so part of, part of the cowboy culture and, and a rite of passage and, and having pals and parts is, is on your birthday, you get shapped and you're, you better hope your birthday doesn't fall on a day you're working. I'm very lucky. My birthday is this month, and generally there's no there's no gathers going on. I'm not working on a ranch. I've been lucky every year because come spring and fall, if your birthday's then, and somebody finds out about it, you're you're going to get held down. So so chapins are chapins are a tradition. You know, if you mess up, you get a chapin. If you if you seriously make a big fupa that day. Uh, uh, if you break a rule, you're going to get shapped, and on your birthday you get shapped. So the rules with Shappen are everybody there has to hold that person down. If you don't help, then you're going to get one too. You have to be a part of it. <laughs> and if you fight back, if you fight back and try to hit somebody, you're going to get it even worse. <laughs> and and that kid Blake, that kid's five foot two. He might be five foot nothing. That's a little stout kid, and he's. He's not a kid. I mean, he's 20-some years old. He's 24, 25, 26. He's, he's a hell of a hand. Uh, it was his birthday, and he was hoping nobody saw on Facebook that day that it was his birthday because we were working. We were up at 4 that morning. Most of the time, guys aren't on their phone. Um, but everybody knew, and we were just waiting for the moment. We were walking to the cookhouse at lunch, and one of the other guys hit him, and I mean, this kid hit him. He blindsided him. And this kid's probably got maybe 60 pounds on Blake, if not 80. And Blake put up a hell of a fight. And I, I think Blake would have whooped him if everybody else wouldn't have jumped in on the deal. Uh, so I had comments of this is barbaric and this is what's wrong with America. Oh, my God. I mean, it was – if you get bored, go back and read. I had to delete a couple because it was just just stupid, just just silly nonsense of people just being too, too thin-skinned and – more of a reflection of what's wrong with with our world and what's going on of people always being offended by everything yeah yeah well it's it, it really become a, a sickness and there's something to be said for guys that work hard for 
work hard and put in a day's work and a camaraderie and and knowing that the guy next to you is going to work as hard as you are so you can be relying be re- relying on them and uh it's uh it's getting back to the basics and just and just just doing a good job and doing your doing your job right is pretty much what it is well, I agree with that, and I want you to keep keep all that up, and don't don't listen to any, any of these clowns on the internet because you're. I love what you're doing on all levels, and um, I, I really appreciate you taking the time to chat with me. No problem, no problem. Hey, it's Ed again. Thanks so much for listening to the podcast, and thanks for listening to that particular episode. I hope you enjoyed it. Before you go, I've got three quick things. Number one, if you like the podcast, please do me a huge favor. Either pass it along to a friend who may be interested, share it on your social media, and or go to iTunes and give it a five-star review. All those things would mean a lot to me, and they would really help to spread the word about the podcast. Number two, if you've listened to many of these episodes, you know that I love reading and I love talking about books. Every other month, I send out a quick email with a few books that I've recently read and highly recommend. The subjects are varied, but they're pretty much all nonfiction with an emphasis on history, biographies, adventure narratives, and topics related to the American West. There are no sales pitches for ranches, no spam, no other kind of nonsense, just books. So if you'd like to sign up for the list, head to Mountain and Prairie slash reading, or just go to Mountain and Prairie and there's a massive tab at the top that says book recommendations. Click on it. There are a ton of good books that I've read. Some of the old email lists are on there. Uh, You can go crazy. There are a lot of books. And finally, if you know anyone I should interview for the podcast, please don't hesitate to reach out and let me know. All my contact info is at mountainandprairie.com, and I'm on all the social media stuff, Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, blah, blah, blah. So feel free to reach out. I'd love to have some recommendations and suggestions of interesting people I should meet. All right, that's it. Thanks for listening. Talk to you soon. Bye.